And it's like, you just did that as like a distraction. It's like jingling keys in front of a cat just to put something in there to distract you from how crap this actually looks. Radio Drome. Welcome to a very contentious episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Cecil and Peter are off this week because I'm torturing my friend David Irons because, well, you probably read in the title, this is an Alex Cox retrospective, and after all of the death threats I got after each one of the movies I made him watch, I'm going to guess, David, you didn't have a good time? Not particularly, no, Josh. Uh, I think that's safe to say. I didn't particularly have a good time. Well, if you want to have a good time, you can go to Adam and Eve. To, well, you can't because you're in England, but the listeners, no, no, but the listeners can go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code DROME and you can get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing and free US shipping. That's why David can't use it. He's overseas, but you guys can using the promo code DROME. But also, if you guys are surfing the internet for the kind of movies we're what we're talking about or even tonight most of alex cox's movies aren't on <laughs> any streaming service so you might need something like nord to try and get around that what you do is you, you go to 1201beyond.com backslash drome vpn and that'll bring you to nord's site nord will help protect your data they'll encode your data you can get around region locking you can maybe be protected in some of the other parts of the internet because nord is sort of like a digital condom. And if you use the 1201beyond.com backslash drone VPN link, you will get Nord for only $2.99 a month. That's 75% off of a three-year plan. You can't afford not to go to 1201beyond.com backslash drone VPN. So all that said, this is a Patreon request and... I would have never done this episode if not being made to, because I've never been an Alex Cox fan. Oh, and by the way, we're going to say Cox a lot, so you can get your Beavis and Butthead 12-year-old out there. Cox, <laughs> Cox, 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 Cox. We're going to be saying Cox a lot tonight. So, Plenty of Cox in this episode. But, David, you were sending me some very angry messages as you were watching the movies, so without going into the specific movies, now that you've watched a good slice, we, we, we didn't watch every one of his movies, but you've now watched a good slice of his films what do you think of mm -hmm. alex cox as a filmmaker direct something they resemble films you can buy them on discs and on dvd and blu-ray and vhs tape and they're a certain running time to be a film technically they're a film but do you but you're supposed to enjoy film aren't you is that a normal well, thing when you sit down to watch a slice of entertainment do you are you supposed to oh, oh i really enjoy this i enjoyed it i feel something for this because i can't say but, i felt that way but see, here's the thing. You and I, I think, are the outliers on this because a lot of people really like Alex Cox's filmography. When, when, when I mentioned on Facebook that I was not enjoying these, I got so many people that were talking about, but I love this movie and this movie. Oh, and his style is so great and I love this. And all I can think of is, you people are morons. You people are the reason people like Alex Cox keep getting work. Well, the thing is, yeah, in this country, we had Alex Cox used to show, because we only had four TV channels for years. BBC Two used to show really odd, subversive films. The things we love, Henelot of Films and uh, Brian Yosner's Society, all this stuff, I was introduced to by Alex Cox. He was the uh, host of a show called Movie Drone, and I just used to show this stuff. And I was always, in my mind, Alex Cox was a cool guy because he he showed me this stuff and uh, he was you know quite charismatic like on the wraparounds of these films and I'd seen Repo Man and I'd seen Sid and Nancy but the other stuff was like a, a grey area and it's like oh yeah I kind of get what he's about and then I entered the grey area the grey area is kind of like a black void that's probably the best way to describe it and I, I, I don't get it the fact that when we were talking the other day and you said potentially he could have directed Repo, uh, Robocop that, that just, I just can't even think. Well, that, seeing how some of this other stuff is, I can't even think 
what that would have been like. It just blows my mind. Well, we'll talk about that because I actually have that and another movie I think he actually would have been right for that he never made when we get to where that would be chronologically. But first, when we usually do these retrospectives, we leave out short films, music videos, things like that, because those don't technically count. He made a short film called Sleep is for Sissies. That doesn't count. But then his first feature would be 1984's Repo Man. I've just never understood the love for this movie. When I grew, when I was growing up, Every magazine talked about how this amazing subversive cult film, and then I I would I caught it on TV on HBO, so I caught it on cut. And I've never liked this movie. I've never understood the love for it. There are things I like about it. Yeah, there are I, aspects I, I, totally I like about it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. There's things I like about it. But as a movie, don't think I like it. But it's the whole premise. Yeah? If let's just say like you're sitting down to pitch a film, and you say the film is about repo men who are trying to possess, uh, repossess a car that has an alien body in the back. And you hear that and you think, that sounds cool. But that that is not the film. It really, because it's just like such a small part of just like meandering scene. So if, you, the, if you gave that idea to like Frank Henelot, imagine that. If Frank Henelot, he said, right, it's about an alien body and a car dissolving. Or Sam Raimi. Oh, Sam Raimi. Yeah, you, can, you know what I'm saying, though. You, I don't feel like I've seen that idea put to film. I've seen something... I'd, I've seen that idea represented, but not to the full extent it could. I really feel that way. When I just watched Repo Man for the first time in, I don't know, 15 years, just the other day, what, what struck me is, and, 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 and he gets a little bit of leeway because this is his first film. This is, you know, he's working for Universal. I, I understand he was under a lot of pressure, but there are both narrative and physical continuity problems throughout this whole movie. Cause first of all, I couldn't believe how he could not make two shots match. You're a, you're a director. You've directed films, music yeah. videos, commercials, everything. Did you pick up on how many shots don't match? The and windows. the wide shots, the, the windows are down. In <laughs> the close-ups, the windows are up. In the wide shots, the hair is spiked up. In the close-up shots, the hair is falling down. In the wide shots, the can is facing to this. No, no, the wide shots and tight shots did not match throughout this entire film. It was like he had no idea what continuity was. And it was driving, maybe it's my OCD, but it was driving <laughs> me up the wall. Your OCD, who would have ever guessed? Who would have ever guessed? These little things get under your skin, Josh. Never would have known that. But you, as a director who's worked on higher budget and lower budget things, can you imagine working for Universal Pictures and making a film this technically inept? I couldn't. I, I couldn't... <sighs> It, it, the only thing you can think of is, like you're saying, there's, they need to get this thing done. He was under a lot of pressure. And so things like that. I mean, you don't know. I mean, like, what, what, do you know any of the story behind that? Like, I, I'm kind of interested myself to know. Like, I'm interested in a way to know why the hell Universal made this in the first place. Because I know it was a kind of weird area where they did, like, Videodrome and they were doing kind of experimentals. They seemed to be throwing money at things, which they didn't really know what it was, and then just trying to put it out there. So was it that kind of era? Was it something to do with that? It, it was something with that and the fact that Michael Nesmith of the Monkees produced this movie he, he <laughs> i didn't know that. i'm not joking i'm not joking uh he also made time rider the saga of lyle swan a year or two earlier michael nesmith brought it to universal because he had a relationship with them back from the monkeys era i think it was michael nesmith that got universal to want to make this not alex cox of, of course i can't see how alex cox i mean Cronenberg up to that point had hits, so you could see why they'd go on a limb for video drawing, even though it's really odd and subversive, an out there kind of film for a major studio. But he had a track record. But this being like a first feature film, yeah, there has to be someone else like behind the scenes pulling strings because it just doesn't make sense why they would take a gamble or a risk on something like this. When Universal made this, because you know how studio heads change all the time. You know, yes. every other week there's a new head of the studio. And they hate everything that's come before. Exactly, and that's what happened here. So the new studio head that came in when they were just finishing the film hated the movie, and he was going to release it direct-to-video. And remember, direct-to-video, this is 1980. Direct-to-video in 1984 was a death sentence. Well, yeah, it's there, not there, like, there was nothing there. There, what, there really wasn't a direct-to-video, like, in 1984. 1984 there wasn't there was there was something but it was like a more nothing than something so he was going to, to release this direct to video 
And then something weird happened. Universal also released the soundtrack, which has got the Circle Jerks and Fear and Black Flag and Suicidal Tendencies, all these punk rock acts on it. The soundtrack sold tons of copies. So all of these punkers wanted to see the movie that they were buying the soundtrack for. So all of a sudden, at test screenings, Universal was like, hey, maybe there's actually something here. So this is a weird movie where the soundtrack saved the film from direct-to-video hell. How weird is that? It's very weird. But in a way, I can see why. I can see why that would have worked around that time. Because it's very relevant for that time, the soundtrack. It really is. It's kind of, I think that's something that Alex Cox is kind of good at. And it's kind of putting his finger on the pulse of, up to a certain point, up to a certain point, he kind of had his finger on the pulse of like, what a slice of pop culture would want in a film. And I think he got it right with this. Because it's one of the things, like, aesthetically, it looks nice, Reaper Man. There's things in there. It's like, oh yeah, it, it kind of looks like how it should, like, you feel, when they're in the junkyard, you're in a junkyard as much as street trash. It's like a real thing. They're there. It, it feels authentic when uh, Emilio Estevez goes in and he pours the beer on the floor and all that business. It's just like, and this is compared to the other film at the end of, like, I feel the other film with Repo in the tunnel. We won't go there yet. But that kind of makes you realize the good here in this. He also has a very good visual style, yeah. which he, which he'll carry over to his others. I, I have no problem with him technically as a director, because his visual style, it, it, it is sort of a anarchistic punk rock. It's hard to, to put into words, but like, like when you see some of his later movies, like Straight to Hell and Highway Patrol Man, you, you immediately, even if you didn't know it, you'd go, God, this feels like an Alex Cox exactly. directed movie, you know? Definitely, yeah, 100%. And the thing is, the punk thing feels authentic in this. It really does. You know, like the Penelope Spheres, like Suburb, that feels like an authentic punk film. Feels like that in this. It- David, you know what I was actually thinking? Because you brought up Penelope Spheris. You tell me that her style in Suburbia and Dudes does not evoke so much Alex Cox to the point where I could totally have seen Alex Cox directing Dudes. Yeah, completely. A hundred percent. That's exactly how I felt when I watched it. That's exactly how I felt. I was just like this. See, the thing is, I think if Penelope Spheris had done Repo Man, you'd have had a tighter narrative. And I think she would have known where to punch in all the things to, to, to make that plot. They'll make that plot about it's like you have to bring it back to basics what the, the the thing if you was going to explain it to a friend it would be there's an alien in the trunk and repo men are trying to repossess the car that is it and it, i think she would have punched into that more and you would have felt you got more of that film but it just feels like it just meanders around on things and it's like okay yeah we kind of get a feel for this world and everything else but the thing that's important the car and the alien thing it's just it doesn't feel that important in a film it just feels like like the b plot which should be a which is also part of the problem I had as narrative continuity. Mm. The film just meanders around from plot point to plot point without any logical progression on how you got from plot point to plot point. I now have sought out the television version, has all of the deleted scenes that make the movie make more sense. Really? I didn't know this existed. I did not know this existed. The version that was shown on commercial television in the 80s and 90s is full of scenes that make the movie makes sense. They add to the characters, they add to the narrative, but then that version's the one where they're calling people mother humpers and stuff. <laughs> so, it, it's a trade-off, you know? <laughs> the movie makes more sense, but it also doesn't because of all the changed dialogue. <laughs> I feel like I need to find this now. I really do. He personally supervised the TV version. So, it still makes me wonder why he didn't leave those scenes in the movie as it is, because... The movie really needs those scenes. Mm, it's an odd one, isn't it? It's, it's, it really, it does feel like a first film. It feels like a first film where you want things to get better with the rest of his career. But I don't think, I don't think I can say that. I don't think I can agree with that. This is totally off course, but you tell me that Otto in this, Emilio Estevez's character, mm-hmm. you tell me that he is not playing Otto in The Bishop of Battle from Nightmares. Also oh, from Universal, by the way. You, you, you tell me that's not the same character. He so is. He completely is. Completely. He just had a haircut in, in Repo Man. That's that's the difference. That is the difference. He's completely the same character. What was oh, the, the, what the, was only the time f- difference between this and Nightmares and... Uh, and then this. Nightmares was actually a year earlier. So technically he played Otto in that and then in this. I can <laughs> totally see. I know his character had a different name in Bishop of Battle. He's Otto. Yeah, completely. And, 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 and yeah, okay, I know Bishop of Battle technically kills him, but come on. 
let's let's go with it. Repo Man became this giant cult classic. I don't get it. I don't like it. It's it's not a great film, but it it gave Cox his career, and then he moved on to Sid and Nancy. <sighs> As a Sex Pistols fan, Sid and Nancy is an abomination. As a film fan, Sid and Nancy is an abomination. The movie, okay, because first of all, there are different stories depending on who you talk to about why Sid and Nancy is so technically inaccurate to what actually happened. I don't know exactly who to believe because John Lydon has one story, Joe Strummer of The Clash has one story, Alex Cox has one story. Sid and Nancy is nothing close to what actually happened with the Sex Pistols, with Nancy Spungen, with Sid Vicious, nothing. It's 100% fantasy. He just happens to have recreated some of the footage from television. Sid and Nancy, okay, here's my thing with Sid and Nancy. Chloe Webb and Gary Oldman were great in their roles. But they're in the wrong roles. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think, see the thing is, I think it was just too close to when the actual event happened. For it to be, you know, like how you're saying it's so fabricated and so not near the truth. Let's just say, for example, like Edward, like another biopic. That was so, I mean, the distance between that film being made and Edward being alive and those things happening. You could kind of, just um, over-elaborate, like turn it into fantasy and pick and choose and cherry pick your story you wanted to tell from it. And you can kind of get away with it because it was a comedy and it was some, you know, you could do something with it. But I think it was so, it was like, what, five years after, like, they actually died, they made this film. It was like, I don't think you were ever going to make a film that would make people happy in any way, shape, or form, because it was just too close to the actual event. And there was too many people around going, well, you know, that's not true, this is not true. And I, I really feel like, I think if you did it now, and it's too long. This is how, like two hours. It's just too oh, long. It, meand- it just Again, meanders. Yeah, like he just loves meandering around things because, like this, this was the last one I actually watched. I was like, okay, I'll save that to last. When I like, plugged the thing in and saw the runtime, two hours, I was just like, please, like it, it can't be two hours. It just can't be two hours. And you just sit in there, watch things. Like you could probably cut something out of this. As in, you could cut a film of like an hour and twenty minutes which would be possible as something. But two hours, I, I just felt like I was listening. Like, I, I, you, I could, for two hours, I didn't want to spend two hours with these characters. It was like spending two hours with two screaming morons. And I was just like, I can't watch this. This is just too much. After an hour, it was like, please, there can't be another hour. There can't be another hour. Like, where is it going to go? It's just too much. But apparently we're on the outs on this, because this is another cult classic that everybody loves, gets praised as a punk rock touching stone with the exception of maybe the final alex cox film we're going to talk about (laughs) all of his movies are loved by people and i i'm not seeing it i don't get it i don't know what voodoo magic spell like screaming jay hawkins i put a spell on you (laughs) i don't know what spell alex cox puts on you people but he's a bad director do you think it was like that hipster kind of element before hipster was actually a thing? Where it was just like, ironically, you kind of like these films. Like, ironically, you like Repo Man because it's kind of like a bad sci-fi film because there's an alien in the trunk. But it's really not like that. Do you know what I mean? It was, was it just like a fad to like Alex Cox because Alex Cox was somehow relevant at that time. Well, he was never really relevant. He's ne- he never really had a big. But here, hit. here he did. Here he was relevant because he did a t- he was the host of a TV show. And he, and he did put his own films on those shows and did his own wraparounds for his own films. And, 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 he, and, he, and he kind of made himself relevant. Like, I felt that he was that relevant director through that, t- through movie drawing, through showing up. And then actually watching the films, it's like, okay, yikes. Well, <laughs> I, actually, I actually noticed something as I was watching all of these in like a two-week span. I, th- I think he was 80s Tarantino. Because yeah. did you pick up on just how many pop culture references are jam-packed in into all of his his movies exactly and then and and then even with that anarchistic sort of very 70s style alex cox was sort of tarantino before tarantino no and he also has the ego to go along with it too yeah i know i completely agree on that and he really doesn't like dogs in every one of these we watched I, I, i can't i think there was like a dog that died in repo man but in every single one like a dog either got shot or in sid and nancy like they kick a car window through and they got to spray paint a dog's face 
And it's just like, this guy hates dogs. What, what's the problem with dogs? I don't get it. I, I have no idea what that's all about. It's, but I do know the Tarantino. I get exactly what you're saying about the Tarantino thing. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's kind of got a lot of that, like, oh, ironic. Oh, I'm, this is so cool. Look at this. This is a cool thing. I'm making something cool here. It does have that kind of feel to it without really st- stepping away from it and looking at it. You're like, is this actually cool? I'm not thinking so. I'm not sure. Picking up on certain things, like in Repo Man, when they're in the hospital, they're, they're, they're going past the pharmacy, and it's Dr. Benway. Dr. Benway from Burroughs Naked Lunch with all of the drugs. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it, they're just, the movies are full of those. And that's not necessarily bad, but when you look at, like, how Tarantino does everything that is a pop culture reference, Cox did it first. It's, it's actually true. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino ripped off Alex Cox. Well, he's ripped off everyone else. Why not, right? Why not? Yeah, throw Alex Cox in the mix. What does it matter? Yeah, I can see that. I completely agree with that. I really do. I really do. Well, but now Sid and Nancy was a relative hit. Yeah, it made a, it made a lot of money on video and everything. But then 1987 was a weird year for Alex Cox because he made two movies and didn't make one movie, and that was RoboCop. Alex <sighs> Cox was the first director they offered RoboCop to. This is pre-Paul Verhoeven. They offered it to Alex Cox, and he turned it down. He later admitted that was a mistake, but he turned it down. He he saw the script, the title. He thought this was just a stupid sci-fi movie. He wanted no part of it. Just think about it for a second. Let's just talk about the style. His style would have made an interesting RoboCop movie. I'll say that. All I can think about with Alex Cox making RoboCop is the scene in Repo Man and they're like, oh my god, that chick's got a metal hand and it's just like a glove of sequins on. And that's all I could think about. I was like, oh my god, what would it actually be like if Alex Cox got his hands on RoboCop? Like, would it be just like a, a, a sequin tin suit? Like, would that, would that, it, it would, it would, you can imagine. Nothing feels like he's got any kind of weight to it. Nothing feels like, like the alien thing. Like, you know, you can, it's so light, it's not really there. It's just something, oh yeah, it's an alien on a trunk, but it doesn't feel like it has any weight. And I think if he did Robocop, it'd feel the same. Like, you wouldn't feel like, oh yeah, this man's been turned into a cyborg and the drug dealers are taking over the city. I just can't see it having that kind of narrative structure that feels like it has any kind of grit behind it, like the Verhoeven Robocop has. I just can't see it. Apparently they really wanted him to make Robocop, because he was also offered Robocop 2 in 1990 <laughs> as well. Oh my he, he, he turned he turned that down, because he felt he wasn't right for it, and the fact that he... Now, now you got to remember what I'm about to say. you got to think of Robocop 2 and 3, remember, were originally one script. Hated Frank Miller's script. He hated the the OCP killing homeless people. He and Frank Miller did not get along for a second, so that's why he turned down RoboCop 2. That says they really wanted him. Okay, you didn't do RoboCop for us. We want you to do RoboCop 2. I don't know why why the, the I, studio I, heads at Orion were like, no, Alex Cox needs to make us a RoboCop movie. And knowing studio heads and knowing how producers work, I think they looked at that script because it's like really heavy and like the kind of punk, like it's punks, isn't it, basically, like with the nuke and everything. Yes. And I think on the, on the really base level, they were like, this Alex Cox guy, he knows punks. He knows how to do those punks. Let's get him to direct it. And I really think that's probably why. I can't see any other reason why you'd be gunning for Alex Cox to do Robocop 2. Apart from someone going, I saw that repo man. That had punks in it. This guy knows punks. Uh, uh, That's the, uh, what, what, can you think of anything? I can't think of anything. I I don't know. But then in <laughs> but then he he did make two movies in 1987. That's why I said this was a weird year for him. He made Straight to Hell, which is a movie I enjoy on a, a stylistic level. I enjoy some of the dialogue. I really like some of the humor. Mm. Some of the humor really works. Some of the stuff with Joe Strummer and Miguel Sandoval's wife were, was legitimately funny. Straight to Hell, it literally has no plot. It's literally just a collection of scenes that happen to take place in a certain order, isn't it? It, it is. But one thing I would say about Straight to Hell, with, like, it does feel, it does feel like that, just a, a series of scenes. But you do have that kind of bookend about people come into a town and people leave a town. For that alone, for that thin threadbare plot going through it, I feel like that feels like more than Repo Man. Like, even though Repo Man's got the car going through it and they're trying to find the car, I think somehow in, in, in Straight to Hell, it actually feels like, okay, they're in the town, weird things are happening, so you obviously know they're going to leave the town. And I think it's like as a narrative structure, it, it works in that really 
basic way. See, I actually thought, because I hadn't seen this movie in, I don't know, 20, 25 years when I started watching it for this, they were stuck in hell. You know, I mean, it is called Straight I to Hell. So because well, yeah. because these are bad people, they're being shot at, then their car breaks down and they're forced to go into the town, and then they see their car overturned yes. in a couple of visions, and then at the end, when the other people are trying to escape, their car breaks down at the same spot, and they have to walk back to town, and I'm like, oh, so this is like a hell-type purgatory thing, but that's never touched on. It's, it's just, never there touched are the, on, yeah, you're completely the, right. The, the, there are these implications, and that's it, and maybe that's genius to some people. They're like, well, yeah, they don't have to spell it out, because we're not f***ing stupid. <laughs> I don't really know if that's what they were going for or if I was reading too much into that. Well, I, I, you know? I read exactly, like, this was the first time I saw it this week. And I, I, as soon as it got to that point when they walked past the car and then like, the car's disappeared and it's just like, I thought exactly the same thing with the title of the film, Straight to Hell, okay. Purgatory. They're stuck here. They can't escape the town because they died in the town, and they, they, they're going to have to find some kind of way to redeem themselves to, to, to leave the town, and it, and it would turn into some kind of spiritual thing or or something like that. And it, it, it never goes back there, does it? And you kind of get to the end, and you yourself begin to forget about it, and then when it's over, you're like, oh yeah, that actually never it sort went of anywhere. loops. <laughs> yeah. It sort of loops loops back with the surviving characters again, with their car breaking down at the same spot. Yeah, but it never really resolves the whole thing with the visions, it just doesn't, does it? There's nothing about like, oh yeah, that, that, that's the reason why that was there. There's there's no kind of strong narrative point why that would even happen. Well, and then also, uh, I, I gotta go back to Repo Man for a sec. Did the crazy scientist that gave himself a lobotomy and thinks radiation is good for you, that was trying to smuggle the aliens out, did he not remind you like, wow, why was Dennis Hopper not in this part? Hey, uh, do, do you know what? When there was a moment when I was re-watching it, and I actually thought that, it popped into my head like, this should have been Dennis Hopper. You think about, what was it called, my my uh, my science project? My science project, yes. Dennis Hopper, could have done that. That is the same thing. Dennis Hopper was originally supposed to be in Repo Man, but not in that role. He was supposed to be in Harry Stanton's part. But they couldn't get him due to a scheduling conflict. But then when Dennis Hopper shows up in Straight to Hell, it's like, well, Alex Cox finally got to deal with Dennis <laughs> Hopper for one random scene. I know. I, I really thought everything was... I was like, oh, okay, Dennis Hopper comes into this now. He's going to be like the big bad guy who wants to turn And he's up. married to Grace Jones oh, for no reason for no at all? no reason at all. Yeah, I know. I know. It was like literally, oh, yeah, we've got Dennis for the day. Then we, we couldn't get him for anything else. So Dennis, do you want to come to do this? But he, Dennis Hopper does totally feel like he should have been that guy in Repo Man. I think it would have elevated it slightly if he did, because Hopper would have just been chewing scenery. Dude. And I think he would have, it would have felt more. The characters are so slight in that film. Like that guy, he's kind of there, and he, he, you know, he doesn't make that much of an impact. And I think if Hopper was there, just completely overacting, just, oh, my God, my lobotomy, like something, it would have, it would have just helped it. I agree, but well, Straight to Hell was a was a really tiny film, you know, two hundred thousand dollars. It was shot over in Spain. Straight to Hell was just sort of a fun movie, you know. Yeah, it was just one of those feel, movies that feels like that. It feels like like a fun. The thing is, they're always bursting out into song, and it just feels like yeah, you just kind of got everyone from Rupert Man said, so, okay, let's just make another film. Well, and also he got a bunch of the music, vi- his music video friends all together to mm. just have random cameos for no reason at all. Yeah, but then in nineteen. He still has a good working relationship with Universal since Repo Man was such a weirdly unexpected hit. They gave him $6 million to make the Ed Harris movie Walker. Walker has been called, uh, Walker's another quote, true story. And I wouldn't be harping on this so much if they didn't keep hammering home the true story aspect on the poster, in the trailers, everything about how true story, true story, true story. Um... (laughs) Historians have said this is one of the least accurate true stories they've ever encountered. (laughs) There's nothing factual about the movie Walker. It it was about, like, the Nicaragua Rebellion and how Ed Harris thinks he's sent from God to help help white people rule so white people can take Nicaragua. Okay, here's the thing. As a film... It works fine. I think it's a little bloated, but it works fine. As a true, 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 this film could not be more made up. Sid and Nancy was a, was an absolute documentary compared to 
how wrong Walker is in relation to reality. No, I completely agree. And I think it's... Have you seen the trailer for this? Oh, the, the trailer is so <laughs> bombastic and ridiculous. I, I, I couldn't believe... Because I've seen no, the movie... Believe. I saw the movie before. Yeah. I couldn't believe how almost jingoistic the trailer was, you know? It, it shocked me, the trailer, when I saw it. It was just like... It, it kind of came across like one of those like Universal Pictures prestige films. Like this is the movie that will change. Well, yeah, because it's, it's like, a period. What? It's a period piece and everything. Yeah, I, I just yeah that that tra- the trailer. Just watch the trailer. I think that's all you need to see. Just just to, just. I think the trailer indicates once that film was made how little faith Universal had in it. We don't know what to do with this. Therefore, we're we're going to do this, and hopefully, it's going to work. But it didn't. And it didn't, because <laughs> it made $250,000 theatrically against a $6 million budget. That's painful. That's not... Well, this was where it kind of ended, really. Like, the, the main... The quote-unquote mainstream of Alex Cox ended here. Really, Alex Cox's studio career is done at this point. It's finished. Perfect. Everything it's everything from here forth is is independent or television. Yeah. But then he took a took a couple of years off. He he did a segment for uh, there's some British TV show called Red Hot and Blue. I have no idea what that is. He did a segment for that. With, I don't British TV show. I don't know that. But then in 1991, now this is where he gets credit from me because he's like, you know what? I really want to step outside of my comfort zone because he said he had a great time shooting in Spain when he was shooting Straight to Hell, and obviously, you know, most of the cast spoke, you know, Spanish. When, when he was in Spain, because, or not the cast, the crew, I mean, hmm. spoke Spanish. So he wanted to make the movie we know as Highway Patrolman, but he wanted to make it in Mexico with a Mexican cast and Mexican crew all in Spanish. I almost said in Mexican. In, 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 in Mexican. The whole movie is subtitled. And I think, in a way, I give him a lot of credit for really trying to step outside his comfort zone. Going to a language he doesn't speak, into a country he's not familiar with, and making a, a, a quote, one of their movies. Cause you tell me this movie doesn't feel like it's a Mexican made movie by, you know, I mean, by a Mexican. Well yeah, completely. I completely agree with that. It, but it's, it's made by it's made by a, a British guy. I know. I, I I was really impressed with it. I, I because as a director, one of my fears is always if you get someone who speaks another language to yourself, it's just like, well, it, it sounded like they did a good job. I think they did a good job. Like it, it looked, they looked like they said it, like it was fine to me. It looked like a good performance, but you never know. <laughs> Who knows? Like maybe they're terrible. Maybe you need to get someone Spanish to look at this thing. This one, this is awful. But like I believed it. It, it felt authentic and it and the narrative was there it kind of like when you know like first act second act third act and it and it and it worked and there was actually parts in this where i laughed out loud i was like i'm actually enjoying this film i think that was the thing in the in, in the whole stretch of watching these films like the the nice surprise was oh i, I think i like this I, I like i'm surprised i like this but i like it but yeah i think it's i think that's overall looking back at everything i think this was the one i enjoyed the most Here's the weird thing. This is a Japanese movie. He got the money from Japan because Japan loved his script saying that they saw, because our highway patrolman in this, he's, he's a rookie and he's fighting against the corruption of the Mexican highway patrol. They saw this as a samurai type movie in Mexico. This was wholly funded by Japanese money to make, a, have a British guy make a movie in Mexico in Spanish for a Mexican market. <laughs> only only in the early 90s, right? You could get away with doing that, yeah, completely, completely. But in a weird way, I can kind of see why they would, like, kind of feel something for this, like it should be made, why they would fund it. There's certain things I've seen in the park, I can't think what they are, but, like, the whole kind of cop thing, and, like, working inside a system, and, like, you're kind of poking fun of it. I could see why, like, as a culture, they could be interested in seeing this thing. The samurai thing's a bit of a stretch. It's kind of like, yeah, I suppose it's like the Western kind of aesthetic to it, in a way. Which is making most of Cox's stuff, but I think it's more refined in this. So I can see why potentially you would think, oh yeah, this could be a, a smart investment. 
But it is the best film. I mean, they weren't wrong. They, like, I think it's the best. I think it is his best film. The ones we watched, I think that's the best one. I, I, I don't know if this was a risk, but I guess he was trying something different. Long takes in this. Yeah. There are only 187 different shots in the movie. Is that right? Because it, it, go back and you think now, now that I've said that, mm. how few cuts and how few insert shots there are. And there was a whole scene that was shot over the guy's shoulder when he went to shoot a dog. No one really cared because, like I said, this was made for, you know, in America, they even wanted to dub it because the the distributor, the distributor was like, we can't sell this. It's, it's in Spanish. (laughs) You know, people, you know, it's the same thing with like, like a Japanese movie. They don't want to read subtitles. We need to dub it. Look at Mad Max. Look at the original version of Mad Max. I've heard, I've never seen this, so this might be an urban legend. I've heard there is a dubbed into English version out there that maybe was shown on TV or something. I would love so, to find that. So I've heard that there is one, but I can't confirm that one myself. I'm interested to know, you could probably tell me this, like, what, straight to hell and this, where, what were they released on? Surely, surely this was like a straight to video in other countries. Straight oh yeah, to hell, no. But straight to hell, what the hell is, where did that actually come out, like at that time? Straight to hell was theatrical, but but it was really more of a midnight movie kind yeah, of thing. Sure. You know, it was it was theatrical, but not not in like going to the multiplex theatrical. Right, sure. Yeah. Well, then in 1996, he made a totally forgettable movie in Las Vegas called The Winner. Honestly, I remember seeing it and I remember not hating it, but I didn't like it. So it's average at best. Yeah, I haven't. I just didn't go near that. It's that's that's like we were saying before, though, like about gray areas. There's so many things in this part of his career which which were just made, and they're out there somewhere. This definitely feels like it's not a standout film. But then we have to talk extensively about the next movie he didn't make. Cox was set to make Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in the late '90s. He, he'd gotten the option. He, he wanted to make this. Now, again, this is a two different stories depending on who you ask how this all went down. Basically, he wanted to make the movie on a four million dollar relatively low budget. And honestly, I could see his style working for a Hunter S. Thompson story. Yeah, I, could. I really could. Yeah. Definitely. But it fell apart for a number of reasons. One, he and Thompson didn't get along at all. He and Thompson hit it off totally on the wrong foot. Hunter Thompson always had, even though he and Ralph Steadman were friends, there was always this like sort of bitterness between them. Because Thompson always thought Ralph Steadman's artwork took away from his writing. When Alex Cox wanted an entire animated sequence for one of the drug trips done by Ralph Bakshi in... The Ralph Steadman style, Thompson blew his stack. First of all, he said, you want to put cartoons in my movie. Thompson apparently couldn't differentiate between animation and Bugs Bunny. You know, to him, animation was cartoons. Yeah, of course, yeah. So just the idea of wanting cartoons in his movie. But then Cox made the wrong statement, saying how memorable those Steadman drawings were in Thompson's work. That was you get out of my office. Is that finished? Well, but then there was also the fact that they might never have been able to make Alex Cox's version because of because of Hunter Thompson. Seemed he sold the film rights to three separate studios, all with exclusive all with exclusive rights. <laughs> and he, he, he took the money for every one. So <laughs> by the time they wanted to make this movie, there was three people going, uh-uh, I own the rights to this. So it became a rights issue, and then Cox eventually moved on because the the producer kept wanting more and more money for this. We got to go to a studio. We need a studio. We need hundred, you know, millions and millions of dollars for this. And he said, no, this needs to be at maximum a $5 million indie film. And they kept going, but Universal's offering us $12 million. Paramount's offering us $18 million. And And he was like, you know what, I'm done. He said the producers just wanted this as a way to make money and get the biggest budget possible. He wanted to make it as an independent film. And on that, I stand behind him. As much as I like the Terry Gilliam film, I think it being a, ironically enough, Universal picture hurts the movie. Yeah, definitely. I think, well, it's, it's like anything when these studios get hold of these things. It's just that slickness where it doesn't need. I think the independent film vibe would definitely help it. Definitely. I, I can, in my mind, I can see an Alex Cox version of that film. Well, technically you still do because they still used his script. He is still credited as one of the screenwriters. 
that's, I think that's, like, see, I'm not totally disappointed with the film that we got, so it's kind of worked out better than the end this way. Maybe it did. Maybe, maybe it did. But in, 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 a, in an alternative universe, yeah. I'd like to see the, the low-budget Alex Cox version of it. Then he went on to make a Mexican comedy in 1998 called Three Businessmen. I gotta admit, I didn't see that one, so I just got a pass on that. And then he made a couple of documentaries. Those don't really count because they're not really film. I mean, they're not films in like a filmmaker putting a, his style or voice behind it sort of thing. Yeah. Then, and then he just sort of lost his mind. He, he, he started making movies just to make them. Like Revengers Tragedy and Searchers 2.0, they barely count as movies. They're just like him goofing around on a weekend with the threadbare script they don't even really count as films to me i i i didn't see either of those films see i can kind of feel like where we're going i don't want to go there yet we're building up to to the the, we saved the best for last on this one folks i can imagine this like him just going that way and just doing things i think he was so disillusioned with hollywood and you know remember the direct-to-video market had floored fallen out of that yeah i think he was just so disillusioned i'm going to say he lost his mind because on the repo chick documentary (laughs) he is saying things only a crazy person would say i know I know he is. I know we, we, we're building up to that. But I mean, like around that time, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the, the, the later stuff that um, Ken Russell was doing after he just got totally disillusioned, disillusioned by the industry. He was shooting. Steve, oddly enough, oddly enough, it came back when rational thing that came from watching the last film was like, yeah, Ken Russell went down this weird road of shooting stuff with well, a green screen. Ken Russell. Ken Russell was a hack and a drunk, and he got banished to basically TV movie hell when he refused to stop showing up drunk on the set. <laughs> and it was like, fine, you want your Jack Daniels more than you want this job. We see where your priorities are, Ken. But there were things like, I, I really like Crimes of Passion. I think that's, I really like that as a film. I think that's a good film. <sighs> you hate that film? I think, I, th- I think Ken Russell's a hack, and I think he should never be allowed, have never have been allowed to work. But, but that's then, a different story. But when he got to the end of it, I think he got to that point as well with Alex, like Alex Cox. He's like, well, I, I, there's nothing left to do. So you, you have to check it out. I can't think of what it's called, but there's some really weird thing he shot of a green screen and like a midget in a Nazi uniform. And you're kind of like, well, you obviously want to do something. This is something, but it's not a film. It's just something. I, I, I don't know what it is. I think Alex Cox kind of went that way, just making things that you could technically say, well, I suppose it is a film. But is it really? We gotta talk about Repo Chick. Oh, you said it's no, awful no, no. name. You said it's name. Repo Chick is not, despite what the title might indicate, a sequel to Repo Man. No. Legally it legally it cannot be because Universal owns Repo Man and they were apparently very pissed off when he re- called this movie Repo Chick. <laughs> he he, he so didn't get that. a cease and desist, but he said their legal department did give him a phone call. He thinks their movie Repo Men, the Jude Law movie, was their shot across his bow because that came out right after repo check <sighs> well, yeah. from universal so well, th- there was this little pissing like contest the, the old um, what do you call it the, the alien vs predator tagline isn't it whoever wins we lose but but so for repo check originally he had it scripted as a seven million dollar I, I i love how he calls this a, a seven million dollar a low budget feature <laughs> you're you're a low budget director yeah seven million dollars yeah and he calls it low budget million dollars jesus christ then when he realized that that wasn't going to be possible he found green screen he found compositing that documentary when you sent me that i was just sitting there and my jaw was on the floor like like he's drummed like the the way it's just it's like he's just found the oracle he's found the ark he's found the holy grail this season he he outright says in that he's never going to make another movie that's not green screen because (laughs) he says green screen opens up so many possibilities he says it allows the actors to act without being distracted by the scenery it it, it allows total freedom he he says green screen is a god to a director because it gives the director complete and total freedom over the film and I'm going you are 
fucking insane. <laughs> Do you know what the whole thing feels like? It feels like a final test shoot. It feels like the final rehearsal until you go and actually make the film. Because no one's there, like in these locations. And it, and it just feels like it's so, right, if you'd have taken okay, the cowboy, it, it's one thing. Taken the cowboy the, the, the hat, who is the repo man in this film, and you would have put him in, in like the actual tacky, seedy location of the repo man or street trash, like an old junkyard. Just being there would have made his performance better. Just being in that atmosphere, just being in that place and that space would have helped because you would have felt more like you were the, okay, um, I'm the owner of this grungy, filthy, dirty place. I'm a repo, man. I get it. There's dirty cars everywhere. And, and it would have just fed into that performance. But everyone is so stilted. It's like, it's just like a read-through. Everyone's just sitting there saying the line. That is it. It's a re- it's a, it's a glorified read-through on a green screen. It's so overlit. Oh, no, not just no, the, no. N- not just what he would composite in the background, but everything is so flatly lit. <sighs> you tell me that this whole movie didn't feel like an R-rated version of a Beverly Hills teen's episode from the late 80s it It was absolutely fucking dreadful and the one shot do you know what there was one shot where i was like oh do you know what because i just didn't feel like i was watching a film for the whole thing it was just like oh i'm watching something but let's be honest a movie is a live action film like you, you go to the movies to see fictitious things played out in real life this was so sterile and so like devoid of any real life I can't call it a film. I can't call it a movie. It was just something that happened on a on a green screen soundstage. The, the thing that there was one, the one shot in particular was when she went to like a bar and she was like walking through the door and I've obviously tried and I knew what this was straight away and I was like, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? And there was one shot where they tried to to lower the f stop because they're digital cameras, so they've lowered the f stop. They brought down like the aperture on the camera to make it look like she's walked into somewhere dark and they fucked up with the frame rate on it because you get the lines. Like the bars going down on the lines, where, where the light, so, so the light is um, interfering with the actual way it's filming, and it puts lines and makes flicker. Maniac, you know Maniac Cop when they film the slow motion and when he's getting stabbed in the in the in the toilet, like the flashback, and it kind of flickers. That's what it, the, the flicker. You get flicker on real film, but on digital you get rolling lines. Basically, you f***ed up. You didn't set the camera correctly. And the one time they tried to do anything with the lighting, like where she's walked into darkness, they f***ed it up. And it was the only time the composite kind of looked... Because outside it was just blown out. It was just like a, a, a white background. Can't believe you got that so wrong. And you left it in with the roll, the flicker on this image. Just like, that's, that's so bad. That's just... It's, it's, David, you don't care. okay. We, we need to explain what this looks like for people who've not seen Repo Chick. <laughs> yeah, so it, garbage. I, I, yeah, that's how to start. Literally, go on YouTube and look for the intro for the old cartoon Beverly Hills Teens. Yeah. It looks like that. It's pinks and purples and whites. And this is not like colored lighting. This is just backgrounds that are cartoonish. The scene where they're in the car. Now, oh, now God, according... God. No. Where they're driving. No. And, and it, it, it literally, it looks like one of those, okay, I had a kid in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So at the mall kiosk, you used to be able to, you know, put your kid inside a VHS tape and, you know, be their photo. <laughs> it looks like one of those. I know exactly what you're talking about. It does look like that. It actually, yeah, it does look like that. And the thing was, they put all those, like, ink splotch things over the driving scenes where it's and it's like you just did that as like a distraction it's like jingling keys in front of a cat just to put something in there to distract you from how crap this actually looks this is not a movie but to hear him talk about it this is filmmaking at its purest (laughs) core and he he also said that all of the awful compositing and cgi is intentional he said because he wants to satirize because no i'm I'm serious he's come out and said that this movie is a satirization of how much cgi is in big budget movies and things like that i don't buy this for a second like, like, gee, and the, do you know what? The, the best, the, the best way to sum this whole film up is just look at Rosanna Arquette's face in every scene because that is how the, the audience should feel. That's how I felt. I looked at her and I was just like, "What are you doing in this?" And I think her face reads that back. What am I doing in this? There's not one moment where she smiles. There's not one moment where she shows any real emotion. It's just like, what, what, this, this, what is this thing? And I, 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 I can't, that documentary you showed me, and he's getting the actors, and they're like, oh, it's revolutionary. Like, it, like, I don't think anyone's ever shot a movie on a green screen before. And I actually thought that was, was comedy. I actually thought that was just something they'd put together just to, you know, like, kind of poke fun at the thing. And it's like, oh no, you, you've all been really serious about this. Like, you think, like, you know, just green 
a green background is this revolutionary thing. He's a master with this green screen. I, I want to ask you a question. As a low-budget filmmaker, sure. knowing that he, he didn't make this for the $7 million he intended, he calls this a micro-budget feature. What do you think, after seeing this, do you think this movie cost? <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Rosanna Arquette cost, like, a, a few dollars to get her in. Realistically, do, do you know what? It, it's like the best Doug Walker film he could never make. That's how it feels. It's just like if he kind of knew, if he could kind of direct actors and he had some sort of pool of actors to come from, to put in there who have got some kind of name. Is it, but even... I don't even want to... Do I want to know? It's going to make me sick, isn't it? How much this thing... It's so... It, it looks... Like, realistically, if this was a $1,000, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I can appreciate that, I suppose. $200,000. Oh, no. But on what? Can you imagine what you and I could have done shooting a real movie? Yeah, we might have had some locations. What... Imagine that. Jesus Christ. I, I, all I can think of is Miguel Sandoval, Robert Beltran from Star Trek, Rosanna Arquette, Chloe Webb. That has to be where the budget went be. because it, because there's no other explanation. But, other, but but the, but they're real. all friends of his, you know. Oh. So I don't understand. But but Repo Chick was essentially the end of his career, as it should have been. <laughs> he's he, he's he he made he went and re-edited. He went and George Lucas straight to hell with Straight to Hell Returns. He color corrected it to make it all ugly instead of looking good. Added a whole bunch of scenes that add nothing to the movie anymore and change some of the order of the scenes, therefore wrecking straight to hell. He made another documentary, and then he made a movie called Bill the Galactic Hero, which... It was a student film, wasn't it? Or something like... More or less. It It was like the Palma. What was the Palma film that he made? Was it about the guy videotaping people? It was kind of like that, like a student project, wasn't it? Where he was the teacher of the class. Home movies, home movies. That's what De Palma did, wasn't it? That was the the student one that he made. Yeah. What do you think of Alex Cox's career? Because I'm going to say right now, (laughs) hey, this was a Patreon request. I know. I hope you got your money's worth because (laughs) I warned you ahead of time. This was not going to be pretty. No, like, yeah, the, the person thanks for this, I think, for the Patreon who did this. Um, yeah, it's, it's been an experience I never want to relive. I, is, what can you say about like the, I, do you know what I think re, the front of Repo Chick the front cover of that Blu-ray that DVD says everything where it peaked and it says from the director of Repo Man and Sid and Nancy that was it it peaked then that was it that that was it you did those two things and they're not even the best ones because if you're still using those films all those years later to sell that fucking garbage Repo Chick then that's it. That you're saying it yourself. You know where you peak. That's it. And it just slid down the tubes straight from there. Okay, Alex Cox obviously has the Tarantino ego thing down. I saw him on Mark Kermode's show, I don't know, three or four years ago, and he's still out there talking like he's this punk rock film rebel, that he's this, like, film vigilante man, nobody can control him, he's the wild card, and how, and it's like, oh my god, you actually believe this, don't no you, No one Alex? can control him. Go to any studio and ask him to, like, fund the next film. Yeah, you're being controlled, all right? Because no one will give you any money. That Repo Chick documentary, even if you don't care about Repo Chick, watch the documentary. It's, to watch it because it, it's it's like watching a man go insane and love every second of it, isn't it? It's like watching like a f- the filmmaking equivalent of like an episode of The English Office, that really awkward comedy where people are saying things and you're like, oh, please don't say that. You're making me feel terrible as a human being. Like it really is. It really is that level of comedy. Hearing him talk about. Well, yeah, the green screen is a fantastic thing, and I can just do so much, and I don't have to, you know, do anything, and I don't have to have the toy. Like, like even if you're going to green screen everything, you'd at least try and make the backgrounds look like something. And I know you're going to say, oh, it's overly stylized. I'm sure he would. It was my stylization to make it, you know, subversive against Hollywood films and CGI. But um, those toys, in the like, how can you take anything seriously? That opening shot of the train is a toy train. It's just like, what, what am I watching? What is this? Why did this happen? I had to do two nights to try and watch that. Because I kept zoning out because it didn't <laughs> feel like I was watching. I couldn't do it. I was just like, this doesn't, I, I feel like I'm not watching a film. I don't know what this is, but this is not a film. Because I like a film, like even the worst of these, when I was like, uh, even sitting there going, okay, Repo Man didn't do this, and you know, Sid Nancy didn't do that. I could still get through them in one sitting, but this thing. Because they uh, felt like they movies. They felt like movies. But this thing is, this is what I mean. This is, uh, I think potentially, realistically, if people were going to be honest, I think this could be there as the worst film of all time. Uh, and for the, for the, for the ego 
behind it saying that this, oh yeah, you know, like this was done for this reason, stylistic reason. But like you could, like, you know, stylistic reasons are stylistic reasons. You kind of expect something stylistic. This is shit. So, okay, how would you sum up Alex Cox's career in general? From Repo Man to Repo Chick, or technically Bill the Galactic Hero, but Repo Chick's the last one that really matters. I think there was some sort of relevance there in the 80s. Beyond that, I think he thought there was relevance. Well, I, I, I really, like, I, the thing is, the, the framing device, because it's the, like the last real thing out there, is Repo Chick. And I think it it just... It's just like having like a rocky terrain of, oh, that's not bad, that's not bad, and just like pouring a pile of garbage over everything. Like it just, de- I think it devalues everything else. If you, you're saying this is this fantastic, I think it devalues everything else. I really do. But then l- let me ask you a qualifying question. Go on. You're a low budget director. Yeah. What do you think as a director of Alex Cox as a director? As in directing actors. I think there's, I think he can get a good performance out of a certain act. I think, I mean, like Harry Dean in Repo Man's really good. Emilio's good in it. Like directing actors is fine. For a script, like putting these scripts to like a story, like a cohesive story from like A to B, no. The meandering, the meandering is in all of it. And that is the thing that devalues it for me. Like more so than the CGI. It's the meandering. It's just like you could cut something good out of this, but it had to be two hours long. It had to have you. And, and like, like I say, like, Repo Man feels like, as a concept, if you gave that to someone else, like Penelope Spheris, Sam Raimi, Frank Henelotta, you could, if you gave it to fucking Troma and said, make a film, an alien in the back of a car and people want to repossess it, you know, you'd have those big set pieces in a Troma film where they're just flipping, like old Dodge Chargers over and stuff. What if Richard Stanley had made Repo Man? That would have been amazing. That would have worked so Richard- much better. It, it, it was so much fit, so much better. Cause I mean, I mean, we suck Richard Stanley's dick constantly on this show because <laughs> I really do think, and I know you agree with me know, on yeah. Stanley, he is one of the most underrated directors ever. Of course he is. Like, the, the films that we got are great. They're so good. This is why, like, even when we did the set, like, I, the guy who I met, who did, I did that Seven Winters Low music video for, we met him, like, I met him randomly, and he's like, I want to make a real 90s looking music video. And it was like, what's well, the most 90s things we can think of? And it was James Cameron, Terminator 2, and Hardware and Dust Devil. And it's like, let's make something like that. For two films, I think he really could, like, set a precedent for that decade, for the 90s. This is a 90s-looking film. And I think if you gave him something like Repo Man, with the comedy in there, with everything in there the way it is, I think he would have pushed it that much further in the narrative to make it work. As, as, as so an then, alien being in a trunk. Like, you would have got... You would have felt like you really got that film. But then, I guess the largest question is... You and I did not like these movies. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Highway Patrolman was actually quite yeah. interesting and I enjoyed Straight to Hell for what it was. Hmm. But why is Alex Cox still so revered? Why do people still love Walker? Walker is a weirdly occult film. There are people who, when I posted on Facebook, I was doing this. I had a friend tell me, you better watch your mouth if you're going to be bad mouth and Walker. <laughs> And there are, oh and, and there are people who legit called me just a curmudgeon who can't enjoy anything because I didn't like Repo Man and all. And I'm just like, what is it about Alex Cox you and I are not seeing, man? I think in the, I think in my country, he kind of made a reputation for himself because of movie drama, because it was on television and everyone's, if you wanted to watch a weird film on like a Sunday night, you watch movie drama. And Alex Cox was the host for that for like 10 years or something. And so lots of people, lots of people were so shame as an introduction to those weird things it's, it's like i'm not gonna say he's like joe bob in my country but it was a similar thing it's like you, certain people would think of like i don't know like sleepaway camp or friday the 13th because they saw that through joe bob and i think a lot of people saw films through alex cox hosting this show and i think that leads into the credibility of him being this kind of protective cool character but when it comes to the actual film i mean like it is it's not it's not there it's just not there there's there's things like we're saying we're like we're like we're saying we don't enjoy Reaper Man, but there's things in there that we like. Like oh we 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 kind of like that. We like parts of these things. It's just the whole where it doesn't work. And I I think some people can see the parts and not the whole. I think that's all I can really say about it. I I, I don't understand. There's not enough there to say. Like even with Tarantino's done nine films now. You could someone could say oh, I like Tarantino's films. There's those nine, and there'd be something in each. Like in, they're all something. But Alex Cox's films aren't even on that level of Tarantino's like production quality to say they're even filmed do you think do you think alex cox is sort of a wasted potential story or a 
how did he ever get this far story? <laughs> it's, it, that's a really tough one. Like, like in a, in a weird world, again, I'd love to see. Like, the proof would be in the pudding if you could just, like, revert time and make certain things happen and give him... Like you're saying, like we're just going on the two first films of the most well-known films. in Nancy, Repo Man. But just let's just say, alternative universe, he got Robocop. What would have happened if he had that the budget, the resources to do Rob? Could he do a better Robocop than Verhoeven? Could he do that? I don't think he. I don't think he could have done a better than Verhoeven. But oddly, I think he could have done. And I remember, I love Terry Gilliam. Yeah, I think he could have done a better Fear and Loathing. Mm. I think there's a place for him. If he didn't do the meandering, like like if he hadn't have done Walker, and he, he, if I think he could have like streamlined it into that studio kind of film war back then in the early days when Universal were invested. I think you, you could have got some interesting film from Alex Cox. Because it kind of started okay, didn't it? But, like, Repo Man is not the worst first film to start with. And Sid and Nancy, yeah, we've got our problems with it. But it's not the worst thing ever. But it's from making those things, they didn't make the money. And Walker kind of put the nail in the coffin where you didn't see. No one was willing to take that risk, push Alex Cox further and give him a bigger... All right, we're going to do something bigger now, Alex. We're going to push you as a filmmaker to go different places. Because he couldn't get the money. So he just kind of made like films of his friends, essentially, in the end. Like Straight to Hell. It's just a funny thing that he made with his friends like around that time. So I think potentially, maybe something else would have come of it. Who knows? It didn't work. We got re- we got repo chick instead. Well, so then to end this, I did not enjoy this at all. No. <laughs> um, I, I don't think David legitimately was threatening my life, but I was getting death threats throughout the week. As you deserve. As you deserve. For 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 repo chick alone, because I kept flick. It was like, should I just get this over and done with? And that that got last. That was second to last. And it just put like two nights. I had to spend two nights watching that thing, Josh. I think you owe me like a life debt for this one. This is what you get with Patreon requests. You get honesty. You can request a director retrospective or a franchise retrospective. It doesn't mean I want to be nice to them. <laughs> so uh, on that note, where can people find David Irons if they wish to explain to him in explicit detail why <laughs> Repo Man is an unsung classic and he is nothing but a ridiculous sycophantic PR? Yeah, I'm, so, I'm just a hack who makes films too grand. What the hell do I know? I write books and try and sell them on Amazon and, and, and low-budget publishers. You can find me on... Instagram at David Irons Writer and on Facebook as David Irons and I'd just like to take a second to say thank you to a lot of your listeners on here Josh because uh, a lot of people have been getting in contact with me saying they bought my book Night Waves which is really nice of them and one person in particular on Instagram who listens to the show named Oscura Ivy she really liked the book she got the book and she likes it and she posted some nice things up on social media I just wanted to say thanks so that's awesome thank you very much but you guys if you want to yell at me or, or make the Patreon request we have a Patreon go look for or either Radio Drome or 1201 Beyond. There's one for each. But you can also contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com or go to 1201beyond.com. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Sometimes I try to do things and it just doesn't work out the way I want it to. And I get real frustrated. And like, I try hard to do it and I like take my time but it just doesn't work out the way I want it to. It's like I concentrate on real hard but it just doesn't work out. And everything I do and everything I try, it never turns out. It's like I need time to figure these things out. There's always someone there going, hey Mike, you know, we've been noticing you've been having a lot of problems lately, you know? You maybe get away and like maybe you should talk about it, you'll feel a lot better. And I go, no, it's okay, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out, you know? I'm just working on it myself. They go, well, you know, if you want to talk about it, I'll be here, you know? And you'll probably feel a lot better if you talk about it. So why don't you talk about it? I go, no, I don't want to. I'm okay. I'll figure it out myself. But they just keep bugging me. They just keep bugging me. There's pills on the side. It's got to be a suicide. So come and pray with my side. You will not have anything. I'm afraid what you can see away. I'm not crazy. I was in my room and I was just like staring at the wall thinking about everything and then again I was thinking about nothing and then my mom came in and I didn't even know she was there she called my name and I didn't hear her and then she started screaming Mike, Mike and I go what, what's the matter? 
What's the matter with you? I go, there's nothing wrong, Mom. She goes, don't kill me, Dad. You're on drugs. I go, no, Mom, I'm not on drugs. I'm okay, I'm just thinking, you know. Why don't you give me a Pepsi? She goes, no, you're on drugs. I go, Mom, I'm okay. I'm just thinking. She goes, no, you're not thinking. You're on drugs. No, no, people don't act that way. I go, Mom, just give me a Pepsi, please. All I want is a Pepsi. And she wouldn't give it to me. All I wanted was a Pepsi. Just one Pepsi. And she wouldn't give it to me. Just a Pepsi. She went through it with her knees. Got to back to see her knees. Just got me. Just play me. It's just worth it. I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. Here's the future. You're the one that's crazy. Here's the future. You're trying to be crazy. Here's the future. They stick me in and instruction. That was the only solution. You need it from the stuff. You take it from the enemy myself. I'm sitting in my room, my mom and my dad came in. They pulled up the chair and they sat down. They go, Mike, we need to talk to you. I go, okay, what's the matter? They go, me and your mom, we've noticed lately you've been having a lot of problems. And you've been going off for no reason. And we're afraid you're going to hurt somebody. And we're afraid you're going to hurt yourself. So we decided that it would be in your best interest if we put you somewhere where you can get the help that you need. And I go, wait, what are you talking about? We decided... My best interest? How do you know what my best interest is? How can you say what my best interest is? What are you trying to say? I'm crazy. When I went to your school, I went to your churches, I went to your institutional learning facilities. So how can you say I'm crazy? Say to go to pick my brain, leave me suffering at my face. By the time they pick my head, better leave me, I'll be dead. I'm not crazy. Radio Drum is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.